All right, I'm just going to do this. Been wanting to do it for a while. I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to turn on the mic, and I'm just going to talk. Even though my super expensive microphone is apparently now broken or not working, and I can't have my laptop plugged in without getting a buzz, there's always some small sort of obstacle in the way of making something, it seems like. Or doing something. Maybe it's not as you're just making something. It's doing something. I don't, I don't know what I want the format of this to be. I really want it to sound like brainstorming, talking out loud, thinking through things, figuring things out, and less like a show. It's one of the reasons that I didn't do this on YouTube. A lot of the, a lot of the stuff that I want to talk about in this podcast tend to revolve around things like uh, personal knowledge management, systems, note-taking, productivity, technology, and then also analog and the, the, the friction between digital and analog for me. And uh, then how all that also plays into, as I wrote in the description, the difficulty I have in that I get stuck on details, on little details. And I'm just learning that that's the way my brain works, that I, I'm in my mid-40s, and I'm just discovering that I'm on the spectrum. And that is that is just the way that my brain works. Which it would actually it sounds ridiculous to say that right now. That's just the way my brain works. Like, it's excusable that that's the way my brain works if it's due to autism. But if it was just the way my brain worked as an allistic or non-autistic person... That wouldn't be acceptable. Yeah, that's, that's weird. So I don't want it to feel like I'm, that I'm talking and, you know, like, <laughs> I don't want it to feel like I'm talking. That's hilarious. I don't want it to feel like I'm performing, that I'm presenting things, that, that the purpose of this isn't to, to teach. What I said about YouTube, it seems like the stuff in personal knowledge management and stuff, programs and things like that, tend to be on YouTube as opposed to podcasts. Like I looked, I typed in PKM and personal knowledge management, and I only found a few shows that fit into that niche. If you want to call it niche into that area, the PKM podcast is like the one that probably is the closest to that. Norman Chelly used to do a show about Rome research called Rome FM. That really fit into there. In some ways, uh, Cortex fits into there, although I feel like technologically minded, as the guys on Cortex are, they're like five or six years behind the PKM community. I think it was just last summer <laughs> that they discovered Obsidian and Craft and when they talk about it, they don't really use it the same way that people in the PKM community, their, their, their use is different. So I don't, I think they're like a, a tangential podcast. People who are into that kind of stuff enjoy their show, but not because it specifically deals with those topics. And I think the same could be said about Back to Work with Dan Benjamin and Merwin May. I think that people like me, enjoy those type of programs because of the um, getting caught up in the details. And sometimes those shows get caught up in the details. But other than those three shows, I can't really think of anything that fits into what I'm, I guess, what I'm looking for. 
the reason that I wanted to do this show is because I'm trying to kind of live the the adage that what you are looking for and you don't find, that's the thing that you should be making. Actually, I think <laughs> many people have probably said that, but I think that I heard it from James Hetfield from Metallica. <laughs> like what, what album or what music do you wish existed? Well, that's what you should be the one making. And so that's what this is. Those three shows that I mentioned, I don't listen to them on a regular basis. I have enjoyed them in the past. If I, if I happen to run through there and I see them talking about a topic that I'm interested in, I might listen to an episode. To be honest, actually, I used to, at one point, listen to uh, Back to Work and Cortex religiously. The PCAM show I didn't even know existed before this week when I was searching. But in the last few months, I found that one of the biggest obstacles to me actually doing things, you know, like, like this, like turning on the microphone and talking, was actually listening to podcasts. I was listening to too many. I'm just, by the way, if you hear pauses like that, I'm probably drinking water. I'm not going to worry about pauses and, and spaces. I want this to feel natural, at least for now. I forgot what I was saying, though. The, oh, currently the podcast I listen to, I just listen to three podcasts and one of them only comes out uh, like once a month. So I'm really only listening to three podcast episodes a week. That's freed up so much time for me. And at first, actually, you know, the funny thing is I started to fill that space with television. And then when I realized that, I kind of pulled back from that and then I started to fill it with YouTube. It, it's a weird thing when you... You realize that something's taking up a lot of your time. You would think that realizing that and pulling it away, you would start to fill that space with the things that you want. But that vacuum quickly fills with other guilty pleasures. So you have to continually trim back. And I don't feel like, I don't know that I'll ever get into a place of stasis where I don't feel like that's going to be an effort. I feel like I'm always going to be working at that. I'm continually going to be crossing that line and then realizing it and then pulling back and then crossing that line and realizing it and pulling back. And I, I think that's just a, a symptom of the world that we live in right now. Everything is overloaded. Everything is coming at us. It's not just um, there's so many places that things are coming at us. There's so many things. You know, like how many television shows are yeah, I know they're they're streaming. It's not really all in the air anymore, but how many shows are currently being produced? I don't know. Do you? But if you went back like 20 years, you could probably make a safe bet and say like 30. And you were probably pretty close. But it's probably closer to 300 now. <laughs> when you consider all the streaming platforms, actual network, TV, oh, who knows, what other avenues? I don't know. I can't think of anything else. Going back to not knowing what I, I want this to be, the reason I chose to do this as a podcast is because there was so little of this. And also because I felt like if I did this on YouTube, first of all, I'm not interested in showing my face. So if I were to do it, it would be recordings of my desktop while I, while I talked, moving through my notes as I talked through things. And 
that's not terribly visually appealing, but I also feared that the moment that I started to record my screen, it would veer more into tutorial category. And I don't mean as a nature of the platform or any of those things. I just think that that's the way I would have reacted. The moment I started showing those things, I would want to move things around. And then I would end up talking about why I'm moving around and why I had it here. And and there's nothing wrong with that kind of content. I enjoy the hell out of that content when it's the thing that I'm looking for. You know, when I'm, when I'm trying to organize something and I find like six videos, like four or five different ways of, I will just mainline that content, but it's, it's not what I wanted this to be. I, I just wanted this to be, in all honesty, you know what I really wanted it to be was a conversation, but I couldn't really nail down someone that I wanted to continue to have the conversation with that I thought was in the same headspace as me on these things that would want to get into the nerdy details of these things. And I've tried in the past and had bad luck with um, finding people who are at the same commitment level as me. So I guess in a way, it's like that conversation, like those talking head shows about this type of stuff, except there's just one side of it, which is one of the things that I'm thinking about in this first episode is how I'm talking. Because it becomes really easy to just become, to begin talking to the audience, which I'm still doing, but there's, there's a, a distinction there. You know, like I said, I get caught up in the details. Okay. Here's a detail. Here's a little detail. The distinction between talking to the audience and talking to myself and recording in a way that sounds like I'm talking to the audience. There is a distinction there. And the, the distinction has a lot to do with the flow. I don't want to get caught up in explaining remedial things, the things that are remedial to me. And once again, you know, maybe that goes back to that whole tutorial thing. I don't want to do a tutorial. I just want to talk things out at the level that I'm at, at the place that I'm at. And then what value is found is what's found. I, I think about when you pick up someone's notebook and you read through someone's notebook. I'm not talking like the diary about their personal lives. I mean, like their notebook where they've done work and they've done thinking you know, like picking up Einstein's notebook or picking up Lenny Bruce's notebook or you know, just picking up like a high school math teacher's notebook or if they've done math or, or you know, a mechanic's notebook where they've, they've sketched out attempts to understand a problem in a motor or something like that. You, you're kind of, I don't want to say eavesdropping into their thought process, but you're, you're, you're like a ghost, I guess. You know, like you're standing invisibly behind them as they're going through the thought. And I think that is more of the distinction I'm looking for. I want to open my thought processes, the positive, the, the negatives, the productive thought processes, the blocked processes, the embarrassing processes, all of it, just because that would be interesting to me that that would be something I would be interested in listening to. I don't know how many people will be interested in listening, but if I continue to produce it in that way, I continue to make it in that way with that goal, it's going to satisfy me, which will allow me to continue to keep doing it. But with that said, everything's going to be an experiment, so I don't... It should stay. Actually, you know what? Now that I said it, it should stay 
in the experimental stage. Maybe in a way, like I said about the, the content hedging itself over the line, taking over too much of your life, it's a, it's a continual process. Maybe that's what this should be. Continue down one road until I realize, oh, I don't want to keep going that way. Let's pull back a little bit. Let's do this. Just allow it to be dictated by the thoughts and not let the form dictate the thoughts. I think that's that's a really good way of explaining the distinction that I'm caught up on. I feel like the performative aspect of of things can limit the thought processes. Whereas I want the thought processes, I guess, in a way to limit the performative aspect. That maybe that's why the the pauses and the you know the bumps of the microphone and all those little things. If they show up, they show up, and they stay. Then you know that that's it's it's what happened in the moment. So that's you know it's not like I'm putting this out completely raw. I'm recording this in descript, just because I find descript and all the time I've experimented with podcasting, I find descript like the easiest. I just record directly in the app. Technically, I get a transcript, but I never really do anything with the transcript because it's always kind of off, especially with my the tonality of my voice, I'm kind of a little grumbly and a little raspy, and I kind of tend to mumble. Sometimes I say words wrong. <laughs> so the, the transcript is usually needs a lot of doctoring, and I just, that does not work that I ever would want to do. People who enjoy doing transcript doctoring or who can at least stay sane while doing that, you people are saints. <laughs> Because I lose my mind, even after like three paragraphs of mine, I don't care. But I like Descript because I can record into it. And then they have a thing called Studio Sound, which I turn on. It cleans up. You know, like right now, hopefully you're not hearing this, but right now in my headphone, I can hear fuzz. Like low-level room noise fuzz. And if that were in the recording, it would... Get rid of that. He usually does a pretty good job, to be honest. It's also going to take care of all the stuff that I used to hate doing. Like when I was first learning how to podcast, I was doing stuff in GarageBand. I had to like try to manually deal with de-assing, which is times when I say S. If you, like, for example, my particular teeth and my particular mouth, when I say S's, sometimes I get a fairly, in the microphone, I get a fairly good whistle. In real life, not so much, but the amplification of the microphone. So that, that pitch is really annoying. So the fact that that clears that out pretty well, it takes care of a lot of the pa-pa-pa-pa's and ta-ta-ta-ta's that sometimes can blow out the microphone. And then it did, I don't know, it did make sure my voice isn't too bassy or too tinny. And it's all just literally it's one switch. Boom. You know, it takes like 10 minutes for it to process. Actually, I'm thinking with my old laptop, but it used to take like an hour to process. I mean, uh, 10 minutes to process, like an hour of audio. And in fact, you can turn it on while you're recording if you want, but my old computer couldn't handle it. But I forgot I have a new laptop. I should have tried it out. I got a MacBook Air from back like four months ago. Actually, I bought this MacBook Air 
the week before they released the new MacBook Airs. It was hilarious. But I didn't really care because this is an M1 and it's way overpowering. I had a MacBook Pro and this thing smokes the MacBook Pro that I had. How's that? It's kind of crazy. I I like this laptop a lot. So that's the the format that I prefer, the descript format. Makes things easy. Other things. What else did I have? Let's go over to the notes. Because I knew that I would probably reach stopping block. Oh, you know, I, I should mention this in the first episode. I, did I mention it already? I might have said that I'm discovering that I'm on the spectrum. I still don't know what that means. I'm still learning about that. It's going to come up in the show. It's going to be things that I, I talk about. It's not the purpose of the show. I just think it's a part. All of the things and all the ideas and things that this show, topics that this show is about, that fits in there as um, similar. But I also think that it's the source of my interest in all of those things. I think in some ways I try to build an external scaffolding to compensate for some of the things and also to extend my capacities in the sense that, you know, like it's the whole building a second brain thing. I'm not crazy about the turn. But I understand what is meant by it. It's it's not, and it's not really a second brain. It's really just you know it's like a you know like you get the iPhone and then you maybe you use your iPhone too much and you're like man I can't get through a whole day on the battery. So you go or this maybe a couple years ago I don't know if they still sell these but there's the the MagSafe battery pack that you could throw in the back that would give you like six or eight hours or more. That, the quote-unquote second brain, I feel like it's that. You're like, here's this thing that I can tack on that's going to extend my capabilities. You know, I'm going to remember who Ulysses S. Grant is, but I might not remember all these facts that I found interesting in this book that I read about him. So I can put those here, boom, and then I can pull them and access them. I guess I guess that's one of the places I really want to go. Let me let me get my notes here. Actually, before we go into that, I want to say that I have been using the Arc browser for I think three days. I really like this thing. I think that in some ways, what people say about it is a little bit overblown, and everybody's like, "Oh, it's revolutionary." And maybe it is. Maybe because I don't mess with the. You know, you can tweak the CSS on any page on the internet. So you can make Twitter look the way you want Twitter to work. You know, get rid of all the suggested crap on the right-hand side. You can do that. I haven't messed with any of that. But if I look at all the other features, I don't think it's revolutionary. I just think it's smart. The sidebar for tabs makes a lot more sense than the top. Because, I don't know. I feel like the top is valuable real estate, right? You know, think back to think back to Firefox, like 10, 15 years ago. You had four, five rows of stuff in that top part where the 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 ribbon starts to look like Microsoft Word, where it's you know it's a good like two inches thick. You're losing a lot of space there. We throw it off to the side, and I mean you can hide it just like you could hide the top as well. But even if you have it open on the side, I just feel like it makes more sense there. The favorites at the top, really useful because things stay loaded. 
So I can, like right now, I'm just jumping into things and I'm not waiting for anything to load except for YouTube. Everything else is loaded. When I pop into it, it's there. So I can jump into a tab, do something, jump back out. And all those little utilities, all those little tweaks, when you add them up, they make a big difference. So I've, I've actually been trying to use more things in the browser. Like, for example, I always use the HeyMail app, Hey.com. I always use the app, but now I've been using it in the browser. And it, to be honest, it's no different. I'm not sure if they, is, is the Hey app an electron app? I think it might be an electron app because it, it's identical. As far as I can tell, in the browser and the app are identical. So, you, I mean, it's just easier to use it in the browser if you're already going to live in the browser for so many other things. The other thing I'm loving before we go into like the note taking app stuff that I really want to rant about, I've, I've been using, I think it's about a month now, Readwise is a reader app, you know, for like read it later and stuff like that. It's great. I really like Matter, but Readwise, once again, it's all those little minor tweaks. It makes a big difference. The fact that I can throw PDFs in here is just awesome because I never knew what to do with PDFs. I don't go through a lot of PDFs. I don't read a lot of PDFs, but, you know, like maybe five a year, maybe 10. And because of that, I don't really, and then never had a system for PDFs. Do I put PDFs in a PDF app? Is that where I read them? Or do I save them in a file on my computer? Is that what I do? I would look up, what do academics, what do they do? But that's ridiculous because academics are reading hundreds of PDFs a year, hundreds of articles. But I just figured if if whatever they're using, it's like it could handle that. It could handle what I wanted. But then it would just be another app. So Readwise as a reader fixes that for me. I just throw it in there and it's saved and it sits there. And PDFs tend to sit there, you know, I'll throw a couple PDFs. So like, yeah, I do want to read that. But it might take me three, four months to ever get around to the PDF. And once again, going back to pruning, one of the things I had to prune was articles and RSS feeds and newsletters and stuff like that. There's so many things that you think that you want to read, but then they just show up and they just keep piling up. And you know what I'm thinking of is something I was going to mention later, but Billy Oppenheimer, who is Ryan Holiday's research assistant, he has a newsletter a weekly newsletter. I think it's called Six by Six. It's a really great newsletter. Actually, what I'm thinking of wasn't in his newsletter. It was an article he wrote, and it was about the index card system, which um, Ryan Holiday has used, and uh, Robert Greene, which is, I guess you're, that's the lineage there. Robert Greene taught it to Ryan Holiday. Ryan Holiday taught it to Billy Oppenheimer. But one of the things that he says in this article, which I recommend. I'll put it in the notes. I don't remember what it's called. Note card. The note card system. And then a subtitle. I think it's something like that. One of the things he talks about is when he's reading a book, underlining stuff, his process for underlining. And in, in, in a sense, one of the things he talks about is, is similar to the idea of fleeting notes. So he underlines stuff in a book and he has like a a certain process for, you know, like if it's this type of information, I will write a question. I don't want to get into the minutiae of that, but he will do all that. And then when he finishes the book, he'll put it on the shelf and then he'll pick it up again two weeks later. 
or approximately two weeks later. And then that's when he goes through the book and through those notes and decides what makes it onto a card. And I say that's similar to fleeting because that's kind of what the fleeting notes are supposed to be. Fleeting notes are just supposed to be all the stuff that pop in your head in the moment. You're just throwing it all down. Then when you go back later, you're like, okay, this is useful. This is something I want to think about more, blah, blah, blah. You know, like, I'm going to make this into, if you use the fleeting literature evergreen process, this is something I want to move down that pipeline, so on and so forth. Or it could just be fleeting notes to blogging or tweeting. You go through your fleeting notes, this I'm going to use, this I'm going to use. But you're not taking all of it. You've captured it all, but you're not using it all. And it can be hard to, especially for me, to decide what's worth keeping and what's not. I mean, it's not that you don't keep your fleeting notes. I think that's the thing I never never really thought about is you do keep the fleeting notes. It's just, what are you placing into the higher value? You know, like in the Building a Second Brain book, Tiago Forte talks about, you take your notes in, and then when you take the notes in, I think he calls it progressive summarization. You highlight the ones that are important, and then you go through again, and you underline the parts of those highlights that are important. You know, like you're, you're slowly whittling things down. It's a similar process. You're trying to grab the essence, but before you try to grab the essence of things, you have to prune the bush. This is the part that I want. And his process of waiting, that helps. But the other thing that he says that I I found really helped me was he said, if you look at it, if you look at the note in his case, if you look at the thing you've underlined and it's hard for you to get up the energy to write it into a note, then it's probably not worth saving. And I think that's a really valuable distinction. If you don't care enough to want to write the literature note or the uh, the index card of that, then maybe you don't care enough about the idea to worry about moving it to the next stage. Let it just stay in your fleeting notes. If you ever need to find it again, you can go find it again. And I think that, I don't remember how this related to Reply as a Reader, but I think it, oh, it's probably about that idea of pruning my inputs as well. If I don't, uh, I found my thread back. If I don't, if I can't find the energy to sit and read stuff from a newsletter or from a blog that I think I want to read, then maybe I don't actually want to read it. Uh, We'll give an example here. Just to make this more clear in my thoughts, Seth Godin. I like Seth Godin. I like his books. I like hearing him talk. I want to like reading his daily blog. I want to. I know that there's value in it. And probably three times in the past, I have signed up for it, had it delivered, read it for the first couple days, and then slowly dropped off and stopped reading it and then unsubscribed. And then did it again, and then did it again. I have to accept at a certain point that as much as I want to be a person who reads it, I'm not interested enough to do it. And I have to trim that. I have to take that out of the stack. The So all over the place. You know, the funny thing is I say, I'm so all over the place. I mean, right now, but 
I'm kind of all over the place when it comes to my my quote unquote note taking because the app that I probably the two apps that I have the most notes in right now are Rome Research and Obsidian. And that's because for a long time I kept switching back between the two. I think a lot of people do that. The I've written stuff on my website about app switching being the consequence of trying to make and happen to the everything app and how once you begin to stretch the utility of an app beyond its, I don't want to say beyond its capabilities, but beyond the stretch, you know, every app can stretch a little bit and be useful in ways that aren't expected. But when you stretch beyond that, and you're really creating like these complex systems just to make something work that you're, you're choosing friction just to be able to stay in one app. That's when you start being lured away by other apps and then you jump and you do the same thing there and then you jump and then you do the same thing there and then you jump. So for a long time, that's kind of what was happening with the dynamic with Rome Research because Rome Research and Obsidian. Because um, I'm going to drink a little water. Because the thing that's great about Rome Research is the freeformness of it. You know, just throw stuff into that daily page and tag things. And, you know, your backlinks are going to show up in the, the bottom of, of other stuff. You know, it's going to surface whether they're tagged or they're not tagged or whether they're linked or not linked. That's, you know, the serendipity of that that's really appealing. It's really attractive that you could just, you don't have to build a system. You can just let that happen. But then I feel like every time I use Rome, I'm not as much as I want to be that I'm able to live in chaos. Person, I'm not. I need a little bit of structure. I need a little bit of something because what ends up happening over time is I start to feel overwhelmed. I start to go into the app and I'm like, where is everything? You know, where, where is everything? Where, where? There's no folder structure, you know, like a folder structure, the the thing about a folder structure or even like a, a strong hierarchical, hierarchical tag system is you have a general map of what you have. You don't have that in Rome. You can build it, but then now you're building these structures and now you're, you're putting all of your effort into building structures. And maintaining those structures. So now it's not giving you that fix of that free form. I can just throw stuff in here. So then I would start to feel the friction from that friction from like, I don't know where my shit is. And I don't want to build a system, but I'm trying to build a system because I have to build a system. And then it becomes unpleasant. And none of this is the, the fault of the architecture of Rome. This is just what my brain does in response to what it is. So then I would go, you know what, let's, let's, let's just go to Obsidian. Now, there's two reasons that you would jump to Obsidian in that case, like that I jumped to Obsidian in that case. The first is because, oh, it's Markdown. Screw it. I'll just throw things in a note. Here's everything from today in one note. Here's everything from tomorrow in a note. And I still have the ability to link. You know, you think, like, I still have the backlink structure. and I still have that. And then the other second reason that the Obsidian becomes appealing is because you're having this friction with Rome and then you're like, man, I'm paying $15 and this thing is making me uncomfortable and I'm not happy. I don't know what the perfect app is, but Obsidian's good enough. 
it does some cool stuff. I don't know if I'm going to go through the work of doing all the cool stuff. And I'm definitely not going to learn data view, but it's free. So, like, if it's not perfect, it's okay because it's free. And then I'll roll a bunch of stuff into Obsidian. <laughs> and after a while, I'm like, oh, my God, I can't. There's no transclusion. I can't do all these things that I could do in Rome. So then um, technically you can. It just gets it gets a little messy. You know, I don't know about you, but, you know, like the little up carrot, a little number string that it puts at the end of a, a block. No, there's no blocks. But it's the end of a a line or a paragraph when you transclude that or you reference that somewhere else in Obsidian. I hate it. I don't want to see that little string. It mess. It muddies up my notes for me. So that's one thing that drives me nuts. And it's like a weird thing. But it is. So then I'll go back to Rome and then I'll go back to Obsidian. I'll go back to Rome and then I'll, you know, I'll get to a point where I'm like, okay, I figured it out. I need, I guess I need like the, the structure of Rome, even though it's not perfect. It does things that work best, but I'm going to use LogSec or LogSeq. I think it's pronounced LogSeq. I'm going to use that because it's, it's like 80% of Rome. And it's free. And it's markdown, so I own my own files. You know, like, you start thinking like this. So, like, right now I have, like, 30, probably 30% of my notes in Rome, 60% in Obsidian, and 10% in, in LogSeq. And it's not working. None of them are working the way that I... I think what it is, it's not that they're not working the way I need them to. It's that I, I can't find a metal scaffolding to make not to make, but to understand how I want to work that's going to be beneficial. And what I've been discovering, actually, actually, before I say that, one of the other things I tried recently was Heptabase. I found the idea of, like, the the daily log, and then you could grab the blocks and pull them out and then put them in squares, and you could organize all of that. I found that very appealing. But then when I started actually using it, I realized in weight, even though it's more visual, it has some of the same problems as Rome for me, and that is that if I'm going to make the notes, you know, pull the blocks in and put them in the squares and then draw the arrows and all that, I'm doing the same thing that I was doing in Rome, which is building a structure. And I'm spending more of my time building a structure than I am writing the notes and taking the notes and doing something with them. So I, I didn't stick with that. I probably, probably not even a week. It's it's a wonderful program. It's just all of these are wonderful programs. It's not for me. So what I've been, what I tr was trying last week and working with last week is something I really like, but not for everything. And that's Scrintle. Uh, Scrintle is similar to Heptabase, but I think for me, one of the main distinctions between the two, one of the things that I find more appealing about Scrintle is the connections between the squares are automatic. I don't have to draw the arrows. That sounds silly, but if you're going to throw like, I don't know, like 40 notes in, in squares onto the screen and then connect them, drawing those arrows takes a lot of time. I mean, and, and then coloring them, you know, coloring the boxes. You got to color the boxes. You have to do that kind of in Scrintle too. If you, you want the distinction, but you don't have to. You can just use white, white blocks. And in Hepta, if you're in the dark mode, which I, I think it's the base mode. I don't even remember if there's a light mode in, in Heptabase. But there's a, oh yeah, there is. Yeah. There's a, there's a, 
a base color for the squares there too. But if you're going to get any utility out of the idea of the visual note taking things, you kind of have to color things for distinction because, you know, like 40 white squares with black text, you're not going to get a lot from that looking at that screen. So you got to have that color distinction. And you do have to put a little bit of that work into Scrintle. But what I realized in working with Scrintle is that it's really useful for mapping out thoughts, but I don't think it's a note-taking app for me in the sense that I don't want to throw all my notes into it. It could handle that, but I feel like I'm stretching the bounds of it, and it, it does. I don't want it to work like that. I feel like if I have like all these things that I need to think about it, that would be a great place to work it out, create a board, pull in all the things that I want, all the cards that I want, and then move them around to add whatever I need and like really just kind of map out the thoughts. And it would be great for that. And the one thing I love about Scrintle that, as far as I know, no, none of the main apps, no taken apps have this feature, which is, I don't even know what it's called. But it's when your your tags narrow down as you select them. You know, like, for example, say you have 15 notes tagged with the year 2015. And of those 15 notes, seven of them are about work. And of those seven, three are about client A. Okay? In pretty much most note-taking apps that are out right now, if I click... 2015, it's going to show me all the notes that have 2015. And I'm still going to see all the other tags in my database, which means that I could click 2015 and click 2014, and I'm going to see, I'm not going to see any notes because the chances of me having a note that's tagged 2015 and 2014 are near zero, at least in, in the way that I would use that. But this feature that Scrintle has is if I click 2015, all of the other tags disappear except for tags that are in the notes that have 2015 in. So like I said, seven of them are work. So it would say work, seven. You know, and then it would also say uh, client A and probably maybe client B and client C because they're in those 2015 notes. So I hit 2015 and now all I see is those tags. And then if I click 2015 and work, I lose more tags. And maybe the only other tag that's left is client A and client B. And I hit client A. And now I have all my notes that are tagged 2015 work and client A. So it progressively removes them so that you can continually narrow down. And what that allows you to do is to create a scaffolding similar to nested notes. I mean, nested folders. You know, when you go into the 2015 folder, you're going to find the work folder. And inside the work folder, you're going to find client A. So the only other app that I've ever seen do that was the Evernote mobile app. And it was probably about six years ago. They had it for about a year, maybe two years, and then took it away. And I haven't seen it since. And Scrintle does that. And I like that feature a lot. Which is funny because so far I haven't used it at all. But I haven't thrown a ton of notes into Scrintle, and that's probably why. What I've actually been doing right now is I'm not, I'm actually trying not to throw any notes into any note taking apps until I figure out where I want to. See, the thing about 
I should probably clarify this. There's really like two kinds of notes that I deal with. There are notes on in my fleeting notes, thoughts, either my thoughts or other people's thoughts or my response to other people's thoughts. We'll, we'll call those fleeting notes for the, for now. There are those. And then there are life logs, life, L-O-G-S, life logs. And it's not the most interesting sounding name for it, but it's just logging important things from my day that I will want to reference later. Places I went, people that I interacted with, details I need to remember. You know, like I, I signed up for the warranty on the refrigerator today. That's going to be useful if in a year something goes wrong with the fridge and I need to remember what, you know, how long ago was it that I signed up for the warranty? Am I still under warranty? Okay. You know, like that kind of stuff. And also, you know, just like personal details, like, hey, I, I went to the Alamo with my mom today. You know, if I run across that note in like five years, it might spark a nice little memory. So in a way, it's it's kind of like a journal in that way, but it's it's also it's just like the details. I don't details is the wrong way to say it. It is the information, which is why I use the log. It will say went to Alamo with mom, but it won't have paragraphs and paragraphs about my feelings about that. It's not a journal or a diary in that way. It is just the the it's just the facts, ma'am. You know, Joe Friday. It's just, it's just the facts, man. That kind of stuff, the the life log stuff, is the reason is is what I think works best for me in Rome and log in Logseek type apps like that. Because when I click on a person and then I can see here's all the things that we did, that's useful. When I can click on my couch and see all the information that I've logged about my couch since I bought it. You know, this is the day it arrived, had it cleaned on this day, things like that. I think that's where the backlinks become really powerful for me in a way that I can't get in any other form. It, no other app type fills that. The outline structure with the backlinks and the references, you know, the backlink references, boom, that nails that. But... What I've discovered is if I stay in those apps and I try to do the other type of stuff, the the fleeting notes, the, the thoughts in those apps as well, things get muddy, things get messy, I can't find things. So for me, I've been really trying, at least for now, to keep those things separated. Even right now, what I've been doing since I said I'm not putting stuff into apps right now until I figure out what I want to do. I've just been working with notebooks. I always work with notebooks anyways. Typically what happens is I put things in a notebook and then they move into the digital. I just find that if I work fleeting notes and log stuff and all that in paper, I get distracted less and I, I'm able to focus more. So, for example, if I'm if I'm working on something on the internet and I have the notebook there and I need to make a note in the notebook, I can make the note in the notebook. I don't have to touch the tab or the thing that I'm doing, I don't have to leave the context of that on the computer. It can sit there and I could just make the note in the notebook. So I've just been working in the notebooks right now, you know, eventually I'll transfer this stuff over. But when it comes to taking the thinking, it's like a really big thing for me recently that actually working with Scrintle 
brought out. Just trying to figure out how to move at first to move my note-taking system when I thought I was going to take all of my note-taking system into Scrintel. Trying to figure out how to do that in the context of the way that worked, which the, the metaphor that Scrintel essentially functions on is the real Zettelkasten. Like it's actually the, the, the closest digital, other than maybe like Zettler, it's the closest digital version of Lumen's Zettelkasten. You know, it doesn't have the reference numbers and stuff like that, but if you don't put all of your, you don't have to put all of your notes on the boards. That's, I think, when, when I was in the Slack for the, the beta users, everybody's trying to tweak the way the app works, and they're all trying to turn it into a quote-unquote normal note-taking app, and I think they're not understanding the metaphor underlying it, that the purpose of the app, I don't think, is to put all of your cards onto a board that they're just supposed to live in the archive, like a stack of index cards that you can find through search or you can find it through tags. You can you can pull the cards out, and then when you find the cards you want to work with right now, you throw them onto a board, and then you work with them. That's the kind of the, the initial thought. It's going to change as users use it, and they want different things, of course. But that's the original thing of it. So to go into that understanding that, or at least coming to the understanding of that, it made me start to think differently about how I'm functioning and how I'm using things. And the notebook thing, going back to the Billy Oppenheimer, I mentioned that that article he wrote. If you think about my fleeting notes, which are now in paper notebooks, that's essentially my underlining of books. And I'm not, I don't mean exactly, I'm using that as a metaphor. I mean, this is the thing that I've done that I'm going to put away for a while and pick up later. And when I pick it up later, I'm going to make literature notes of it. So I have my fleeting notes in these paper notebooks, and I put them away. And then when I go back later to either put them into a digital system or to do what I'm doing right now, put them on paper index cards, I'm going to trim that hedge. I'm going to, okay, I don't need that one. I don't need that one. I'm going to need that one. But the, through figuring that process out, I started asking myself a question that I haven't asked myself in a really long time, which is, what what is my purpose here? Why am I doing all this work? Why am I doing all these things? What am I trying to accomplish here? And it's not learning. Because I, I'm doing the learning, the, the majority of the learning, you know, if you want to use the 80-20 principle, I'm doing the 80 just by reading things and writing fleeting notes in a paper notebook. If that's all I needed, I'm already doing the majority of that just by those two actions. Why am I doing the rest? Whether it is taking the time to make paper cards of literature notes or putting it in a digital or which more likely both because paper cards can burn up in a fire. So maybe I want to put those in digital too. So I have a backup. I feel like if I did that, that would be something that I went back to again later, maybe prune, prune the tree a little bit more prune the bush a little bit more, you know, put more space there. So then I go back to the cards and I'm like, you know what? This card sucks. This card sucks. This card sucks. I'm going to put that in the system. But I kept asking myself the, the, the question. I don't, I don't say I kept asking myself the question. That's, I think I'm just I'm slipping into cliche here. I kept 
trying to articulate that in my mind. Like there was something lingering and it took me a while to, you know, roll the ball around enough to understand when I was holding and then be able to articulate. Oh, the, what is, what is the question here? Oh, there's, oh, there's a question here. What is the question? Well, the question is, what is the purpose? Why am I doing all this other stuff? And the answer I came up with is to make things. It's not just about learning for me as I want to make things with them. It's not just self edification. I want to create. And in, in particular, it generally revolves around writing. So then I had to ask myself, okay, what about my process is facilitating that? And I realized so much of my process, whether it was in Rome, Logseek, Obsidian, it was not facilitating my process. I was getting caught up in these structures and building structures and organization and all this stuff, predicting a use in the future that may never come type of thing. But I wasn't I was rarely taking pieces and moving them down a pipeline towards the thing I actually wanted to do, which was write something, create something, make something. And something about rethinking the, the card structure because of Scrintle and then, and then reading that piece by Billy Oppenheimer and, and realizing it's the same whether it is in Scrintle or whether it is on, on paper cards that I can cut out so much fat by taking not the lifelong stuff, but the fleeting notes and pruning those into cards, whether digital or paper cards, and then use those to begin to build structures, to write something, to put something together, to go from there. And that's when things started to really click for me. And I don't know if, how long I'm going to stick with the paper card thing because a bit of the paper thing that sucks about the paper card thing, which might be a good thing or a bad thing, is there's no search, right? <laughs> search is you flipping through the cards and reading them. But I think maybe that's a good thing. I mean, that's, how, that's how I'm feeling about it right now is maybe it's a good thing that you have to do that manually because you're continually interacting with and 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 re-encountering the cards over and over again. Whereas with search, you're just getting the exact things. Actually, you know, now that I say that, it reminds me of the reason that I bought myself a big-ass paper dictionary. I say paper dictionary because it's not digital. It's an analog, a big, heavy, book-smashing dictionary. And that's because I realized many years ago, I realized that looking up a word online gets you to the destination that you want faster. It gets you to, if you're looking up obsequious, what what the heck does obsequious mean? It's going to get you to that answer faster, but that's not necessarily a good thing because when you had a dictionary and you had to flip through this big ass dictionary, especially like a word like obsequious, that maybe you don't know how to spell. I'm terrible with spelling. You're not sure how to spell it. You're going to encounter many other words. And because of that, your vocabulary is going to increase. But you might also stumble on something that makes you think about something else. And the index cards on paper can be that same experience. You're looking for this specific card. But you, as you're looking, oh, look at this one. This one might be useful. Oh, my God. I forgot about this one. This is better than the one I was looking for. And it... 
I guess in a way, it's it's, it's kind of like uh, the difference between uh, those of us who love books, the difference between going to a library or a physical bookstore and buying on Amazon. I buy on Amazon all the time. I have thousands of Kindle books, but it's different. You know, when you go onto Amazon for a book, that's usually the book you buy. Like if I were to look over here at my bookshelves, I have, uh, have many books that I didn't necessarily buy on purpose. And what I mean by that is, uh, for example, if I went onto Amazon because I wanted to buy Hyperbole and a Half by Ali Broch, then I would type in Ali Broch or I would type in Hyperbole and a Half and it would take me to the page for that book and I would say, buy, done, mission accomplished. I'm out of here. Maybe you look at here, you know, maybe you look at the thing underneath where it says, if you like this book, you might like this book. Maybe. But when you go to a bookstore, maybe I'm going in there and I'm looking for hyperbole to half by Ali Broche, but I'm probably going to see just, you know, I'm not going to walk into the store like a mercenary, grab the book and run out. I'm going to walk around. I'm going to go down a different aisle. I'm going to go down many different aisles. I'm going to see hundreds of other books and I'm going to probably end up buying one or two other books that I had no idea that I was going to walk out of this bookstore with those chance encounters are extremely valuable. And I feel like we, we, we lack them. And I think that as efficient as note taking apps can be for the purpose of what I'm trying to do to take things and create things with them, they may might not be the best way of accomplishing that. I also think of, I had the flu like a couple of weeks ago and it was bad flu. Like I was down for almost for like three weeks. I was down. And uh, as, a, as a result, obviously, you know, you watch a lot of TV because you can't do anything else. I couldn't even think well enough for most of that to read. But one of the rabbit holes I ended up going down was about VHS and watching documentaries about people who still watch VHS, watching the history of VHS, understanding them culturally something changed. It's like my whole reason that I was interested in watching that was because I remember as a young kid going into a video store. This was before Blockbuster existed. There was no Hollywood video. There was no name brand video stores. All video stores were independent so every one of them was unique and different. And the thing about that, because they weren't chains, is you open a video store. You want to have a lot of shelves, right? Because if you only have like 20 movies, you're going to go out of business, right? <laughs> not only because you, can, you can't accommodate that many customers, but because you're not offering a lot of variety. So you want to fill your shelves and you want to fill it with a lot of different stuff. And before... Blockbuster and Hollywood came around like the, the innovation I'm using innovation here, even though maybe not in a positive way, the change that Blockbuster brought was the back, which eventually became the back wall and like the sidewalls. But the back wall was like, here's all the new Blockbuster movies. And I'm using Blockbuster in the term of what we refer to movies in the theater that sell well Blockbusters, not in the company name, but here are all the hit movies all the new hit movies. I, they used to have a slogan, or not a slogan, but a promise 
that they would advertise. And I don't remember what the number was, but it was like 30 copies of every movie that you want to see, you know, like the new movies, the new hot movies. If it was uh, French Kiss with Meg Ryan and, and Kevin Clyde, there were 30 copies of that, whatever the number was. Every single one of them had that. So that was like the whole back wall. But before that, that's not the way it worked. When you went, before that existed, when you went to these independent places, they might have maybe like two, maybe three copies of that new movie. So you go in and you're looking for French Kiss. Well, sorry, all the copies are out. Oh, okay. Well, you're ready at the video store. What are you going to do? You're going to walk around. You're going to look at the other videos. You're going to take something else home. So what these video stores had to do is they had to fill their shelves because it was, I think it was what it was, is it's really expensive to get a lot of copies of those hit movies, whereas a chain could easily do that when they did that later. But the independents couldn't do that. So what they would do is just, they would fill it with any videos they could find. So there was, you know, now we have one movie market, right? But there was this other huge, huge market of direct video or just B movies, C movies, D movies, just all kinds, lots of horror, lots of horror movies at that time, lots of goofball comedies, lots of stuff that you'd never heard of. But here's in the video store. Two movies that I remember specifically seeing in that local video store when I was younger. Movies that probably never, ever, at the time that they were released, played in a theater. Hitcher, which was a horror movie, and Frankenhooker, which was a horror comedy. I remember those specifically because they had really memorable covers. And that was the thing. Cover art was so important because, like I said, people were walking around looking for movies, but most of the movies they were looking at they never heard of. So you got to have that good cover art. You got to pull the person in, you know, it's like a book cover. Where I'm going with this is that's the encounter, right? You know, the, so many things were like flipping the channel on TV back when you had channels on TV that you flipped, you discover things. Like one of my favorite shows of all time, homicide life on the street was something I discovered flipping the channels at like 12 in the morning. And What's this? Huh, this looks like a cop show. I'll watch it. Whoa, this is awesome. Never would have discovered it. Never would have heard of it. And even even things like that happened with Blockbuster. Because you had that big back wall. And the specific store I'm thinking of, that was by my grandparents' house. If you were standing and looking at that back wall, you walk down the center aisle, you're standing right there. You're looking at, that's where the hottest movie was. Right there, dead center. You're standing there, you're looking at that. Right behind you, your butt is facing another rack of movies. And in that particular store, it was the foreign movie section. And that's where I discovered some of the best movies I've ever seen. That's where I discovered Akira Kurosawa. Because somebody I went to the store with was looking for one of the movies on the back wall. I was not interested in that for whatever reason. So I was turning around and looking at other stuff. What's here? What's this stuff? Whoa, look at all these foreign movies. What's this Akira Kurosawa Dreams movie? This looks weird. I'm totally going to rent this. Encounters. They lead. And I, and I understand that, to some degree, the Rome research, the backlinks, and the unlinked references in particular are trying to build some of the serendipity, and I do think that they accomplish that to some degree. But I think... The drawbacks for me, personally for me, 
not specifically with their app, but with digital note-taking apps, at least right now, is that I get too caught up in the minutia. I get too caught up in the system. I get too caught up in the details. I get too caught up in building structure and organizations and not pulling pieces and making things and, and, and doing the stuff that the only reason I'm doing this stuff. I start creating all of these tasks and chores for myself that don't help with that goal. So I'm, I'm doing this stuff for nothing. So I think for, for right now, I'm, I'm going to stick with the paper. But I, like I said, I do want a digital copy. So I have to figure out where I'm going to do that and how I want to do that. Because it's got to be something simpler. Maybe not simpler is the right way. Something that I can look at differently. I'm really interested in this new app, Tana. But everybody's talking about Tana. So it's probably not a, a big surprise that I'm saying I'm really interested in it. It seems like the super tag feature that allows you to tag something and that adds a structure for you. And if you change that structure, it changes everywhere. So like, it seems like it cuts the chase on some of that structural stuff in a way that removes a lot. I don't want to say it automates it because it does to some degree automate it, but it removes some of that. For example, if I had in, in Rome, if I had a structure for my daily page, you know, like H1, life log, and then bullets under that, and then H, H1, another H1 header, fleeting notes, and then I had all the stuff under it. Say so that's the structure I wanted. And then the four months, five months from then, I realized, you know what? I want to add another section on the daily pages where I can break up these fleeting notes between this and this, you know, like I, I'd make some ideas, structural change. I don't know if everybody else would do this, but what I would always do whenever I would change that is I go back to all the old notes and add the new structure. This is the kind of minutia and bullshit that would get me stuck in these loops forever. That was the problem. This isn't a problem for most people. Like I said, it's not a problem in the way the apps are built. It's a problem in the way that I interact with them. The way that my brain interacts with them is because I can't stand the idea that I have a new structure in, in 10% of my notes, but the, you know, the 90% that were from before that are in a different structure. So when I encounter them, I'm not going to be able to find that same structure that now I want. And Tana in some ways seems I haven't used it yet but seems like it mitigates some of that because if I make a change, it actually, that change moves all the way through. It can't make it everything. You know, like if I were to create a new section, like, like I said, say I wanted to somehow, I have no idea why I would want to do this, but if I wanted to split my, my fleeting notes into three different types, Tana would allow me to add that field but it's not going to grab all the stuff and separate it the way I want to. You know, like nothing's going to do that. N nothing's going to ever understand the the manual way that we need to organize things. So if I ever get in on that um, early access on that, and I play around with it, and it seems like it seems like something that will, I know it's going to work for the life log stuff because it's an outline structure similar to Chrome, similar to LogSeq. So it's going to do that stuff. I'm just not sure if it will function as well for the fleeting notes. It might. If I remember that my fleeting, the purpose of my fleeting notes on digital was only to archive. And I stopped trying to work with the ideas within that app. And I either work with them in Scrintle or 
in actual paper index cards that taking ideas out that that's just a library for me. If I can retain that thought process, then I think I might be good. Okay. So my throat's dry. Where are we at here? We're in 15 minutes. Wow. Okay. So this is the structure, I guess, for going forward for now. I've got 3% battery on my laptop. 